I was a ranger general of Silvermoon, but I was betrayed. Then I was killed by Arthas Menethil and raised as a banshee to do his bidding. But I broke away from his control. Now I am the leader of the Forsaken, your queen. Welcome to the Undercity, my home and yours. Welcome to Corpse Run Radio. This is Corpse Run Radio. We are the Forsaken. The Forsaken. Have you ever thought about adding servers for previous expansions as they were then? No. And, and by the way, you don't want to, that, to do that either. You think you do, but you don't. Remember when you had to like spam cities and say, need a tank, need a tank, need a tank during the Burning Crusade days? You don't remember that because now you just push a button that says go to the dungeon. You don't want to do that. Remember that one bug that really pissed you off that we fixed like two years ago? Still there in the past. This is a really special day for the team. To everyone here watching online, watching in the BlizzCon halls, we are here to talk about what's new for World of Warcraft. Now, before I get to the big news, I want to take a minute. And I want to talk about ice cream. Ice cream is great. Ice cream is one of my favorite desserts. Personally, I love chocolate and I love cookies and cream. Cookies and cream is actually my all-time favorite dessert. But I stand, understand that for some of you, your favorite flavor is vanilla. Someone once said that you can't go home again. But they lacked vision. And a temporal discombobulator. of World of Warcraft around the world, we hear you. I am pleased and also a little bit nervous to announce the development of a classic server option for World of Warcraft. (laughs) 
This is a larger endeavor than you might imagine, but we are committed to making an authentic, Blizzard-quality, classic experience. We want to reproduce the game experience that we all enjoyed from the original Classic WoW, not the actual launch experience. <laughs> so please bear with us. It's going to take some time, but it will happen. Greetings, fellow Warcraft fans. Exactly 12 hours after this video was published, the sound that you're about to hear will be heard across tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of computers across the world. And an entire universe will spring to life for the first time all over again. In an instant, what defines a World of Warcraft player will change. After today, a player can jump into Classic and discover the magic that shaped a generation of gamers. Or you can enjoy today's Warcraft as it marches forward to new stories and adventures into the unknown. Or you can enjoy both. It was only a short time ago when the fiery passions for a return to the past were answered by a blunt rebuttal, and yet that only ended up turning into fuel for the fire. It burned so bright that no one could ignore it any longer. Guess what? You are a part of that fire. You fuel this movement, and thanks to your efforts, the world gets to enjoy the fruits of your labor. This year is going to mark 15 years of the World of Warcraft. This year, well, I guess we've come full circle, haven't we? Throughout this long journey, we've met friends, formed partnerships, and created families. How many of you are coming back 10 or more years since visiting Azeroth? How many of you are the children or even the grandchildren of vanilla players. That's just one thing that makes this release so special. That new generations of gamers have the chance to see what it was that made us fall in love with this world. How many of you are going to revisit your favorite classes? How many of you will try something different this time around? It's going to be incredibly exciting to watch players relive their nostalgia and challenge their own memories to see how much they've grown over the past decade. When you log in in a few short hours, take a look at the people jumping around and celebrating. Share this moment with the people who are around you, in-game or in real life. Because all of these people, they're your fellow adventurers and explorers, your comrades, your future partners against the likes of the Scarlet Crusade, the Remnants of the Scourge, or the minions of the Black Dragonflight. Soak in every drop. Revel in it. You're home. Welcome back. Now take those good vibes and ride that positive energy everywhere you go. Take it to the gates of Orgrimmar, to the crossing into Stormwind, and well beyond the world of Warcraft. This is your game. Live it the way you want unapologetically. Play it with your friends and family, or on your own, or in the company of fans of your favorite streamer. Play as hard or as casually as you want. Immerse yourself with the add-ons that this community has made for you, or go in blind at your lowest graphic settings. Play your way. Celebrate that others can do the same. Be good and kind to your fellow gamers. Show the world just how awesome a gaming community can be. Show them the might of the Horde and the fire of the Alliance. And most importantly, Remember that we're all World of Warcraft fans, whether it's the classic or the modern game. We might prefer different flavors of ice cream, 
but we love it all the same. So Warcraft fans, this is your moment. Rise up and get ready for an adventure. Good luck out there. And welcome home. I hear you want to take it old school. <laughs> Let's go. Ooh, 4.2, talking like you're so brand new. But they don't make you like they used to. But you can heal me all day. Uh-huh. Ooh, 4.3, chat. How long since you were subclass? The way you're shouting, where's my talents? And I know we're gonna play. I wanna take it through Black Rock. And we can ride it through Max. Donna Bonnick, sees room, get Cora. You want to recap, I think it's the same Turn back the clock on this whole game Call it your name, bring it in the right brain tactic Baby, you're so classic Baby, you're so classic Baby, you, baby, you're so classic Ooh, I'll invite ya Dungeon kids will excite ya LFG instead of slash three, nothing ever stays the same. No, they don't. You're a paladin healing in holy. I'm a blood decay throwing AOE, and it's dungeon three because my threat's easy. Get you back into the game. I wanna take it through Black Rock Mountain, and we can run it through now. Dynamonic Sea's room, get core tuned, but we're in the wrong X Pack. You wanna recap? I'm thinking the same. Turn back the clock on this whole game in my Hall of Fame. Everything is so throwback-ish. I kinda like it, like you're wearing tier three. Old school chic, 51 talents and Captain 16. Calling your name, bringing in the right bait tactics. Baby, you're so classic. Yeah. Baby, you're so classic. Uh, talent trees, baby, please. Let's take it back to class. Let's take it on back, let's take it to the start Back to the game that once stole my heart When mounts in the 40s, Blake lands in the 50s Can't wait till I cap out a 60 You with me? Playing with no x I'm raiding through Max Wave before rap MC Blackwing AQCG right before the past changed it Take me back to the same, turn back the clock Call this whole game in my Hall of Fame is do you consider yourself a law or a lawbringer? Hello and welcome everyone to episode 103 of Corpse Run Radio. It's finally happening. Today World of Warcraft Classic is going to release. I have prepared a couple of segments for you from different content creators as I always do. A couple of songs as I always do, and I have prepared my own thoughts, my own list of what classic is about. Highlights, if you want to call them that, noteworthy things, stuff that is different from the retail version, stuff that is quote-unquote new if you haven't played vanilla before, 
stuff that you might not know, might have remembered, misremembered, however you want to phrase it, just stuff that makes WoW Classic WoW Classic. I hope you're going to enjoy this episode, so without further ado, let's start. I am going to go over my list within a few categories that I established, such as your tune and its class, professions, raids and dungeons, the outdoor world, and looting. I hope you'll enjoy it. Let's start with our tunes and the classes that they play. I haven't included all the classes in this list, just the classes that have the most outstanding differences. When reaching level 10, your character will start getting talent points every level and you can spend them in your talent tree. You don't learn a spec in classic, you just have a spec. And a spec is not a thing that lights up within a UI like it is in retail. When you respec or when you spec change, you have this in the warrior's case, you have protection, you have arms, you have fury, and then you click on the respective uh, spec button and then click uh, change spec. That isn't the case in classic. You open your talent tree and you have this tree with three tabs up top that represent your classes specs. Each tree has the possibility to be specced into with a full 51 points, but you very rarely want to do that because in classic it is a mix and match and sometimes you want to empower a attack that is from one spec tree or you want to increase your defensive capabilities which is most likely in the tank tree and so you mix and match and you will see that there are shorts with three numerals being thrown around when it comes to specking so say you want to level a warlock that might be a 31020 spec which means that the very left tree is the affliction tree and you are going to spec 31 points into that tree and then the middle tree in your ui is your demonology tree and you want to maybe not skill into that at all and then the very right tree is the destruction tree and you expect the remaining points the remaining 20 points into that so that gives you a 31 0 20 spec and there is no button like i said because there is only that one spec so there is no necessity to have a button that says this is my spec because the window that you work with is your spec if you learn your abilities at your trainer you will see because that's the thing you will have to go to a trainer and pay money copper silver gold for i think the least amount is one silver so the copper doesn't necessarily apply but that's beside the point when you go to your class trainer you will see that they have a list where you start with rank one then you have to learn rank two to learn rank three and so forth you cannot jump 
a rank you have to buy each and every rank of a spell to learn the last rank but that's yeah that's just how that is and then you have the different abilities that you learn and then you have a a cost for it so in early gameplay you will have a real issue with affording your spells or your abilities because money is just so hard to come by so you want to either sell everything you can find a way to make gold in another way that's basically primarily what the talent tree is about respecting if you choose to respec reset your talent tree that is going to cost money like it is in retail as well there is a cap i think it's 50 gold i'm not sure though but i think it's 50 gold and the cost decreases over a certain amount of time that you don't use the respec feature and then eventually it's going to be back to i don't know what what the base minimum is a couple of gold maybe or one but uh yeah and that and gold is very hard to come by it's expensive compared to to retail weapon skills are a thing together with defensive skill and unarmed weapon skill so if you don't have a weapon equipped you will basically punch an enemy and that will skill your unarmed weapon skill many people want that as a last resort uh, so you at least have your fists to beat up an opponent but again you need to train your fists so weapon skills are skill points are awarded five skill points per character level so a level five character has 25 weapon skill points a level 20 has 100 so that makes 60 levels of character progression times five that gives you 300 weapon skill points if you are a class that has a racial bonus to your weapon skills or to any weapon skills then that will be reflected as well usually it's five so classic example is the human who i think has maces and swords weapon skill bonuses the only race that has two weapon skill bonuses the dwarves have bow weapon skill bonus the dwarves have gun bonus and so forth and then there is equipment that grants you weapon skill bonus up to i think the highest is seven i'm not too sure but that's like i think the highest so there you go that's the weapon skills resistances is another thing you need to take into account the fact that resistances are important in classic when you eventually raid next ramas you want your gear dripping with frost resistance when you raid aq 20 or 40 you want the nature resistance when you go into mc you want fire resistance and so forth it's pretty straightforward hunter pets have a happiness indicator that is uh, red 
yellow and green face smiley. When it's neutral, as in yellow, it will do 100% damage. If it is unhappy, it will do 75%, so 25% damage penalty. If it's really happy, like not just neutral happy, but when it's really happy, when it's green, it will do 125% damage. That is where you want your pet to always be because you want the 25% damage increase from your pet. That can be achieved by feeding it. So you want to feed your pet on a regular basis. And not just any old food, but you want to feed your pet the right type of food and the right level of food. So say your pet eats meat, then you want a whole stack of meat for your pet and feed it that meat to for it to sustain the 25% damage bonus if you don't if you run out of meat or any other food that your respective pet eats you will run the risk of not only the pet becoming unhappy but also of it eventually running away when it stays unhappy for long periods of time and you don't want that especially if it's a hard to come by pet, a special pet that you are fond of. So there is that. Another thing with the hunter is you have a dead zone as a hunter. You have the zone between too close by to do range damage and not close enough yet to do melee damage. That's referred to as the dead zone. Can't remember what the respective distances are but yeah, you'll, you'll find that out. Not only with the hunter, ammo is required to fire a projectile weapon or to throw weapon on a rogue. So if you are a warrior tank, you can equip a ranged weapon in your third weapon slot, which every class has a third slot now in the weapons um, row, so to speak, where you have offhand weapon, main hand weapon, and then you have the third slot, and it's commonly referred to as a ranged weapon slot. There are cases where it's being used for other things, but generally that's the ranged weapon slot, or one, one slot for the casters, for the rogues, and for the Warriors, you can put in a gun or a bow, something like that, to pull from a distance. And then you have the shaman and the paladins and the druids. They have their special items, respectively, that they can put in there. And with regards to the warrior, you need ammo for those weapons as well that you put into that third weapon slot. Okay. Like I hinted at earlier, when talking about the tree, the talent tree, spells and abilities have ranks. I think the normal rank max is seven, six or seven. Then there are books you can find around the world, in dungeons mostly, that give you access to the higher ranks of an ability. And you definitely want those. 
because they do more damage, they grant a bigger buff or stuff like that, depending upon what type of spell the book is for. Your pets and minions need to learn abilities too, from a trainer directly, in the case of a hunter, which is a pet trainer, or using a tome that you buy from the demon trainer, and then teach your minion, in the case of the warlock. Reagents are needed for certain abilities. Classic example is the paladin that needs to run around with so many uh, reagents because they have to buff the groups or the raids every 5 or 15 minutes depending upon what type of buff they use or blessing or whatever they're called. The small ones, the singular ones that you put on a on another tune or on yourself lasts five minutes and the big group buff that requires a different reagent lasts 15 minutes. So at the latest every 15 minutes or after death because the buffs obviously don't last throughout death need to be rebuffed. Um, yeah, so some examples other than the paladin Mages use runes, priests use candles, shamans use anks, and all those reagents, obviously they cost money, because you need to go to a vendor and buy them. Unless, and this is one of the few exceptions, when you play a priest or a mage or a shaman, the water walking, um, Ability buff from the shaman and another one. I can't remember what it was. There's one more ability buff that a shaman uh, uses. Those two will drop from, I think, from maritime creatures, if I remember correctly. So in retail, those items still drop, but they are gray items. So they're like trash. In classic, those are thoroughly needed to buff the people. Um, as a priest or a mage, you want to jump off a cliff because you it's like your last option to get away from something and you hit your levitate or slow fall button respectively and all of a sudden you notice you still fall like a rock only to find out that oops I ran out of light feathers. And you might ask, oops, what? Priests and light feather and levitate? Yes, levitate requires light feathers as much as the mage requires them for their slow fall. So no more throwing away light feathers as a priest because you don't need them, because your retail priest has the spell of levitate free basically that's not gonna happen anymore hunters and warlocks basically have one less bag slot because they need their fifth bag slot for their special bag the quiver for the hunters to store their ammunition in and the warlocks want the soul pouch or whatever other soul bag it is for their soul shards. Why? Because those are generally bigger and 
they will automatically dump the ammunition. When you buy it, it will automatically be dumped into your quiver. Or when you drain to get a soul shard as a warlock, that will automatically be deposited into your soul pouch. So you don't need to reposition either of those types of items. Bag items. Quest items are in your bags. They're not in that invisible quest item bag. But still, it's in your bag. You can see it. You can destroy it. You can. It takes up bag space. Pets and mounts are items you cannot learn. There is no pet or mounted journal. Those items are in your bags and take up bag slots. Be aware of the items you sell or destroy. Might cost you dearly. Be aware of that. Class quests are a thing. Not just the level 20 Shadowfang Keep quest that you get and run there and get your weapon. And then you come back to the class trainer at level 50 and get another class quest to go to BRD, and that's it for class quests. No, no. Class quests are so numerous, and that is, in my opinion, what adds the flavor to a class in Classic. Let me explain. Druids, in retail, you go to your trainer, you learn this, that, and the other, or the forms that you have. Uh, not even that, you just ding, and you get the respective... Um, shape-shifting ability. In Classic, you need to go and learn these shape-shifting abilities by going on a quest, quest chain. The most involved, in my opinion, is the aqua form, where you need to go to both continents, if I'm correct, and swim out into the open sea. I think one is located in Silver Pine, in the northern island off of the coast there. Can't remember where the one in Kalimdor is. Be that as it may. You need to go to those two zones and perform some tasks there as part of the quest to obtain your aqua form. As a warlock, you unlock your minions doing quite lengthy quest chains as well. Well, except for the imp. That one is almost given to you for free because you need an imp at the start. Warlocks and Paladins get their epic mounts from an epic quest chain, respectively, and they get their level 40 mount. The base mount is being taught to you at level 40, not 20. And you only get the epic mount speed, the 100%, not at 40, as in retail, but at 60 at max level. So, like I said, at level 40, the Paladins and Warlocks get their mounts for free and the riding skills. Priests have priest-specific racials in addition to their race racials, the normal ones that every class has or every race has. One of these extra priest racials is a shared one that is shared with one other race and one is exclusive to their specific race. A example for a specific one is the fear ward. 
uh, from the dwarves. That has been made a general priest spell now in retail, but in vanilla, in classic, it is a priest racial spell exclusive to the dwarf. Paladins are alliance exclusive and shaman are horde exclusive classes. Two mighty epic weapons are obtainable in classic that quite a few people don't know about. If you want a challenge for either hunter or priest and you want to go on another epic adventure, quote unquote, all you need to do is go into Molten Core, fight Majordomo executives and loot the respective item that starts the quest for either hunter or priest and then you are off on a quest chain that in the end for the hunter will award you rock dollar, a bow, or for the priest you will get benediction, a staff. So many people were quite, how should I say this, proud? Yes, when they did that. Um, I'm not sure if, and this is a big if, but I'm still not sure. I'm not sure about the other quest chain. Rogues have their two special professions, if you want to call them that. They have lockpicking that you need to level. You just have to get people to give them their lockboxes to open or let you open their lockboxes. I think that's a better way to, to phrase it. And the second rogue exclusive profession is the poison profession. All rogues in classic use poisons, rightfully so in my opinion. I've been talking about my, I almost want to call it disdain, about why rogues don't use poisons with every spec because that's basically not a thing. A rogue needs to have poison, be a poisonous class. But again, that's something that, uh, yeah. There is a interaction between those two, pickpocketing and poisoning professions, where to start on your poison mixing career at level 20, you need mats, obviously. And the interaction is such as when you pickpocket a target, you will more often than not get mats for your poison profession. So pickpocket as much as you can as a rogue because you will need those mats. And the more you pickpocket, the less you have to pay out of your purse. Because again, as little money as you might have to pay for the mats, it's still money you have to pay. And with classic, you want to save as much money as you can, especially in the beginning, when you haven't learned all your skills and abilities yet. Also, rogues that use Zap on a regular basis in retail, just for the fun of it, to be on the safe side when you stealth somewhere. Oh, I'd rather zap that target so it doesn't detect me. 
yeah, with classic, Zap breaks you out of stealth by default. And the only way you can prevent it, kind of, is to go into your subtlety talent tree and put three of three skill points into one of the abilities there that makes your zap not break stealth to a max of 90%, so 30% per skill point. Now the remaining 10% is the luck of the draw, RNG. So even if you have those three of three skill points used, you still have the 10% chance that once you stealth, your zap will break you out of stealth. Vanilla WoW had a few class quests that were quite ridiculously difficult for almost no reason, and Hunters had a pretty nice one. In order to get the best bow in the game at the time, Rock Dalar, Longbow of the Ancient Keepers, he had to go to Molten Core and defeat Major Domo to get the Ancient Petrified Leaf which started the quest chain. The leaf gives you a quest to find the owner. Back in Vanilla, quests were pretty vague. The guy you were looking for didn't appear until you were standing exactly in the right spot. So, anyway, the quest giver would give you the task to kill four demons and gather the mature black dragon Sinu, an item that dropped off of Onyxia. There was also another guy next to him that would give you a really nice quiver if you gave him the blue dragon bits from Onyxia. All four demons were rare elites and despawned if you approached them with anyone, including your pet. So you had to make sure no one was around to talk to him, and then they would reveal their demon form. All four demons had a special ability that could kill you quite quickly, and each demon had a weakness to one of the hunter abilities. Artorus the Amiable in Winter Spring looks like a Tauren and turns into a Doomlord when you talk to him. The Doomlord's special ability is to place a dot on you that would do a ton of damage and lasted 3 minutes. So if it hit you, you died. He also enraged often and can one-shot you in melee. His weakness though was that his curse had a 30 yard range and he took 350% extra damage from Serpent Sting and received a debuff that did extra damage which stacked. So all you had to do is kite him and reapply Serpent Sting as much as possible and shoot him with the rank 1 arcane shot every once in a while because he would reset if all you use was Serpent Sting. The hard part of this fight was that you had to clear a kiting path before engaging him, otherwise you'd end up kiting him into one of the bears or a stealth cat nearby, and since you needed to use Astuga the Cheetah to kite him, that daze could have killed you. Also, once he reached 20% health, he'd slow down a little, and if you went too far away from him, he would despawn, so you had to constantly keep him more than 30 yards away while also not going too far away or running into anything. He also moved faster than you while going uphill, so his speed changed randomly. If you didn't know how to jump shot while going uphill, you couldn't kill this guy. Franklin the Friendly in the Burning Steps looks like a human and turns into a fell guard when you talk to him. His special ability is a frenzy that he uses every 15 seconds that removes all magical effects and gave him a damage boost. That would kill you quickly. Plus, he ran faster than normal speed, but slightly lower than Aspect of a Cheetah. So in theory, you could simply just kite him, but this guy had a lot of health and it was impossible to kill him without running out of mana. So eventually, you wouldn't have mana to use Concussive Shot anymore and he'd catch up to you and kill you. His weakness was Scorpid Sting, a sting that hunters use that would lower the target's hit chance by 5%. When used on Franklin, it would remove his frenzy and make him so his melee attacks only did 1 damage. So, to beat this guy, it was more mana efficient to just melee him down slowly with auto attacks. Since his frenzy removed all magical effects, he removed the Scorpion Sting every 15 seconds and started hitting really hard. So, all you did was wing clip him when you knew he was about to enrage. Wing clip, for all you new hunters out there, was this melee skill hunters had that applied a slow. But this slow was considered a physical debuff, just like concussive shot or hamstring. So 
anyway, you'd wing clip, run out 8 yards because I was Hunter's minimum range back then, score bitsing him once he was enraged, and then slowly run back into melee range and repeat every 15 seconds. Simone, the inconspicuous female troll in Ungoro Crater, would turn into a succubus called Simone the Seductress when you talked to her. Simone was a little different from the other four demons in one way. You see, when someone tried to help you with the quest, the demon would say something along the lines of, only a fool would stay in this battle and then despawn. However, when Simone did exactly the same thing, another demon called the Cleaner would show up and attack everything. And this little guy was immune to all damage, so you had to run away or die. Simone's special ability was a debuff that reduced range attack power by a ton for 45 seconds, a lightning bolt that hit hard, and a pet that only did melee attacks but if left alone could kill you. Simone had two weaknesses, the first being that Viper Sting would silence her so she couldn't use lightning bolt. Viper Sting was a sting that would steal mana from the target, and Aspect of the Wild would reduce the damage of a lightning bolt by nearly 75%. Aspect of the Wild was an aspect that gave nature resist. Since she had two weaknesses and a pet to deal with, there were a few ways to kill her. The first and easiest way was to simply freeze trap the pet, silence Simone, and melee her to death. Since she was a caster, she didn't hit very hard. You also didn't need to keep running out to reapply Viper Sting because Scattershot was enough to interrupt Lightning Bolt here and there, and Aspect of the Wild made it so you didn't really take that much damage when you took a Lightning Bolt to the face. This meth was only possible though if you had either Magic Dust or a Goblin Rocket Helm to CC the pet once the trap wore off. Because in vanilla, you couldn't use traps in combat. Method 2 was to freeze trap Simone and kite the pet. Once the pet was dead, you would just run in and melee her to death. Simone was considered the easiest of the four demons to be. Nelson the Nice was a gnome in Silithus that turned into a dreadlord named Solonor the Slayer when you talked to him. Solonor was the hardest of the four demons to kill. His special ability was to hit hard in melee, randomly fear you with an instant cast spell that also did a ton of damage, and spawn bugs that moved slowly but hit super hard if they touched you. His weakness was wing clip and it rooted him in place for 30 seconds. So, to beat him, you just had to wing clip him and circle around him and shoot him to death with serpent sting and auto shots while trying not to let the bugs catch you. Since he would randomly fear you, this was not the easiest thing to do. And depending on your fear path, you might even run away from him and have him despawn. Supposedly, he was also weak to frost trap which made him do reduced melee damage. In melee range, you would not cast fear or the bugs so you could just beat him to death with melee attacks. But this was notorious for not working and being bugged. Plus, once Frost Trap ended, you still had to go out and kite anyway, since you couldn't lay traps in combat. There was a way to make the fight a little easier by having a Warlock help you. All you had to do was challenge a Warlock to a duel and have them cast Rank 1 Curse of Weakness on you, which lowered your armor a little but made you immune to fear for 2 minutes. Then, just have the Warlock come out of hiding long enough to cast a debuff you when it falls off. Which, for some reason, didn't count as helping since it was technically a debuff, not a buff. You also had to stay close to the PvP pole and have your Warlock friend stay out of the fight for it to work. Once you killed all four demons and brought their heads back to the quest giver, he'd give you the bow and staff and you could show off to all the other hunters who didn't have one, because most hunters who got the quest never completed it due to its difficulty. Dungeons and Raids. Attunements are required for a few parts of the content, some dungeons, some raids. UBRS will probably be the first major attunement that you need to do, where you require a key. That is a ring actually, but yet the attunement is required nonetheless. The Onyxia attunement, oh yes, the Onyxia prequest, both on Horde and Alliance sides were long, yeah. The first major, major attunement. UPRS was kind of long, but it was repetitive more than long, because you just had to go through LBRS, 
and get the three gems and then do some stuff in I think was it burning steps I think yeah um, and then like in the closer vicinity to the black rock but with the Onyxia pre-quest you have to do so much more on the alliance side you have to go to BRD on the horde side you have to go to uh, what is it Swamp of Sorrows and Desolus just to like name a few things you have to do and the things you have to do there aren't easy to do and not like a two minute thing just stuff that dungeons and raid meeting stones are just that meeting stones not summoning stones like in retail no spawning at the dungeon or raid entrances after wiping on a fight or dying in the dungeon or raid you will have to run back from the outside graveyard so remember that if you have a res capable character with you let them res you before you release your corpse it is not a two minute run back from the beginning of the dungeon it is a five minute run from the graveyard to the entrance if you are lucky and then the two or three minutes inside the dungeon this is uh, a whole different animal scarlet monastery has four wings two open ones to the left and the right and two closed ones that are locked behind doors that you need the scarlet key for the sunken temple in swamp of sorrows has three levels in classic in retail they've reworked it and taken out two of the three levels and like nerfed it into the ground literally in my opinion that was something that um yeah okay strathorn is one big dungeon with two entrances the um service entrance is the locked one where you need the key to the city and the main gate is the open one that everyone can go into also another tip from me if you go into Strathholm, try and start doing the reputation grind for the Argent Dawn early, much like I said earlier with the skinning profession. To have that ready with the Argent Dawn rep, you want that to be as high as possible for the time when you go in and raid Nax, should you do that, because you need to buy all the things that you need for raiding snacks at those vendors at those Argent Dawn vendors the attunement quest you need to do to be able to raid snacks gain entrance to snacks is cheaper the higher your rep is with the Argent Dawn so it's a purely monetary decision uh, so Scourge stones collecting is is a thing dungeons are important in another way too because in classic we are back to requiring alchemy labs when crafting flasks so the most noticeable alchemy lab is in scholomance in the room of the lich 
so you need to go into Scholarman's, fight your way to the Lich's room with a whole bunch of people, and then use your alchemy lab there. So be prepared for if you are an alchemist to go along with a whole bunch of other alchemists to then just run Scholarman's to that room and then be done. Uh, the same thing goes for enchanters where they want to use the back door of Uldaman. That back door was closed in retail back when the cataclysm happened. But classic, this is open and you want to use the back door to be able to gain access quickly or faster, or whatever you want to call it, to the enchanting trainer that is inside Ulderman. Because you want to go there, you have to go there actually, to learn the last bunch of recipes, formulas, for the enchanting profession. I think it's the last 20, 20 points, if I remember correctly, that you have to skill using those recipes, formulas, whatever. You heard me mentioning keys earlier. A couple of keys I mentioned, the Scarlet Key, the key to the city in Stratholm. There are a whole bunch of keys. And to not have your inventory filled up with keys, Blizzard implemented a quote-unquote new feature in when was it? 1.10, I think, called the key ring. And that is a little button in the mini UI bar. Yeah, so uh, there's a little button resembling a key, yellow, I think, or two keys on the chain, something like that. And that is not active at launch. Don't look for it. You won't find it. It's, as far as I know, it will be implemented at phase two. And that's going to hold all your keys that you got, except the UBRS key. Because it's not a key, it will not go in there. So, like I said, there are different keys. Probably the first one you'll get is the Nomregan key, the key to the workshop. And the next one will be the Scarlet key, and then most likely the third one is going to be the Shadow Forge key. I think that's what it's called from BRD. Those three will be among the first that you get. Uh, key to the city will drop from a mob, same as the Scarlet key. So you might not get it on the first or second attempt going through those dungeons, but eventually you will get them. Be aware, if you have a group that is ready to go, that at least one person has the key if you want to go to specifically one of the closed-off areas. If you want to run the cathedral wing in Scarlet Monastery and you don't want to run any of the other three, be aware that one of you guys needs the key.
powerful abilities and combos that were incredibly strong at one point or another in Vanilla WoW. But this list will also cover more than just strong damage dealing abilities, and cover defensive and CC effects as well. At number 10, we've got kind of a meme combo in the form of the Paladin Bubble Hearth. You see, Divine Shield, the Paladin ability that gives him immunity to all forms of damage and debuffs, lasted for 12 seconds in Vanilla. Hearthstones had a 10 second cast time, so a pally who was in trouble could simply use bubble and then cast hearthstone to get out of anywhere. If a pally got caught out in the open world and was dying, they could just bubble hearth out of there. If a pally was mad at a raid, they could just pull the boss and then bubble hearth. It was the ultimate escape tool, and there were no ways to remove it in vanilla WoW, as mass dispel and shattering throw weren't added until later expansions. So if a pally wanted to run away, there wasn't anything you could really do to stop them. Number 9, Frost Shock. Frost Shock is also another kind of a meme ability that everyone liked to call overpowered, but it kind of deserved its infamy to an extent. Frost Shock was one of the three shock shamans could use, which all shared the same short 6 second cooldown. 
and since three abilities all shared the same cooldown, Blizzard wanted to balance each one in a way that made you want to pick it over the other two. Earthshock had a baked-in interrupt, and was also kind of overpowered to an extent. Flameshock just did damage and put a dot up, and Frostshock did damage and slowed the target for 8 seconds. Oh, I'm sorry, did I say Frostshock did damage? Because I meant to say Frostshock did a lot of damage. It did way more damage than an instant cast spell with such a short cooldown really should have been able to do. Plus, it had a slow attached to it that was longer than its cooldown, meaning you could keep someone permanently slowed with Frostshock. Frostshock was one of the few ranged slows in the game that could do that, in vanilla WoW anyway, and the only one that also did damage. And in vanilla WoW where mobility was low, this was actually super powerful for that time period. So much so that Blizzard added DRs to slows in patch 1.4. Basically just to deal with the Frostshock problem. In case you were wondering, DRs don't exist on slows today. They removed them from that in the Burning Crusade. Slows were a much bigger deal in Vanilla WoW, and Shamans were one of the most mobile kiters thanks to Frostshock. Number 8. Fear. Not just the Warlock ability fear, but all fears. Fears in Vanilla WoW worked a little differently than they do today. Functionally, they are basically the same. When used on someone, they run around randomly and can't use abilities. And in Vanilla WoW, fear had a chance to break early if they took damage. This is still the case today as well, only the damage threshold worked differently. Fear had a higher chance to break the more damage they took from an ability, and a low chance to break from small amounts of damage. So if you just put dots on a target and used a channeled ability, fear was basically a 12 second stun. Technically, hunters, priests, and warriors also had fears, but only warlocks had a spammable, no cooldown fear. So if a warlock got opened up on in PvP, they could have their invisible succubus seduce the target, turn around and cast fear, then put up full dots and use one of their three channeled abilities to do a ton of small ticks of damage, and basically kill people through a near permanent fear that would never break. Number 7. The Cheap Shot Slash Kidney Shot Combo Rogues could cheap shot out of stealth for a 4 second stun, and then combo into kidney shot for another 6 second long stun for a total of 10 seconds of stun, the longest stun chain in vanilla WoW without some kind of special items or gimmicks. The only real downside to the stun combo was the energy and combo points required to use the two abilities, which could be completely offset through some items like Thistle T. A 10 second stun was enough time for a gear rogue to kill a low armor target, so it was technically possible for rogues to kill someone of equal level while never getting hit back in exchange and with very little skill involved. A 10 second stun was powerful back then, and would be powerful today. Although this 10 second stun wasn't exclusive to Vanilla WoW. It was a thing all the way until Cataclysm, when Blizzard finally put Kidney Shot and Cheap Shot on the same stun DRs. But it was really strong in Vanilla WoW too, and the cause of lots of complaints about rogues being too overpowered. But funny enough, the thing that people associate rogues to being able to CC someone to death without ever getting hit back didn't actually involve the cheap shot kidney shot combo, which I'll get into a little bit more later on in this list. Number 6. Curse of Shadow and Negative Resistances Before patch 1.9, you could cause targets to go into negative resistances with either Curse of Elements or Curse of Shadow. Resistances were a stat that would lower damage taken by their specific element 
and give you a chance to resist their effects. So having high shadow resistance meant you took significantly less shadow damage and could sometimes be immune to fear and other shadow school debuff effects. Negative resistances basically did the opposite and caused you to do bonus damage to targets. So a warlock throwing up a curse of shadow on a target, causing their shadow resistances to go into the negative, they could hit them for double damage shadow bolts, which if they crit, could do a potential of four times their normal damage, which was basically a guaranteed one shot to any player. This was so good that Blizzard just removed the ability to go into negative resistances in patch 1.9, as it was most likely a bug anyway and unintended. Number 5, Mortal Strike. Mortal Strike was one of the hardest hitting instant attack abilities in the game, which scaled with weapon damage. For those of you who don't know, some abilities scale with weapon damage and weapons have varying levels of damage based on speed. So a fast weapon will do less damage than a slow weapon, since it hits more often. While a slow weapon will do a lot more single hit damage because it doesn't hit as often, and that's how Blizzard balances them out with each other. So with an instant attack like Mortal Strike that scales off the weapon's damage and doesn't care at all about its speed, you want the slowest weapon possible to make sure it could hit the hardest. And this is where the Arcanite Reaper came to fame. The Arcanite Reaper was a high-level blue weapon that was somewhat easy to craft and extremely slow with an attack speed of 3.8, making it a monster of a weapon for warriors. It was so good it even outclassed some epic two-handed weapons from Molten Core, despite being a level 58 blue item. So coupled together with Mortal Strike, a middle-of-the-road geared warrior could take out half the health of a player with one MS, and even kill Clothies with a crit. It was easy, effortless power, and very widespread with how easy it was to obtain the Reaper. But come patch 1.8, Blizzard normalized weapon attack speed and brought Mortal Strike more in line and no longer overpowered with an extremely slow weapon. And on a side note, because of the widespread use of the Arcanite Reaper, it was used as the model for the heirloom two-handed axe we have today. Number 4, Blind Prep. Ever hear the infamous stun rogue who killed max level geared players while naked and using a starting zone dagger? Well, that infinite stun combo actually didn't rely on stuns very much, and was in fact so strong because of Blind. You see, Blind is an instant cast, long form CC that breaks on damage, and Preparation is an ability rogues have that resets the cooldown of all other rogue abilities. So what the naked rogue in the video did was take advantage of the fact that Preparation could also reset the cooldown of Blind, and the fact that Eviscerate did static damage and didn't scale at all with gear. So what he did was double cheap shot with Vanish, and then blind. He'd wait the full blind duration in order to leave combat and re-stealth. Then sap, and wait the full duration again for another re-stealth. Since in vanilla WoW, sap made you leave stealth. Then pop prep to reset all cooldowns, and then do the whole thing again. After going through two full rotations of this CC chain, along with at least two cold-blooded eviscerates, and a couple of other damage moves to build combo points, that's what allowed a naked rogue to kill fully geared players. And blind was the crucial part of that whole CC chain, as blind was what allowed the rogue to leave combat in order to use sap, which allowed cheap shots DRs to disappear, and let the rogue save all of his combo points for eviscerates. So it was really eviscerate static damage and blind's cooldown resets that allowed the chain to be as effective as it was. 
and you could have someone CC'd for about 45 seconds straight if you did it correctly, of which only 10 to 12 seconds of that were spent in stuns. And because of Blind's incredible usefulness with a cooldown reset from prep, Blizzard made sure all future versions of preparation excluded Blind from being reset, starting with the Burning Crusade. And that's how preparation has worked ever since. Number 3, Wind Fury Weapon. Nearing two points in Vanilla WoW, Wind Fury Weapon was kind of broken and overpowered. Wind Fury is a Shaman Weapon enchant that gave the Shaman a 20% chance on hit to proc two extra attacks. Before patch 1.4, this proc didn't have an internal cooldown, so it was possible for Wind Fury to proc off the two hits generated from Wind Fury, and theoretically could proc off of itself forever until the target died. This was also the time period before attack weapon normalization, and since the extra hits from Wind Fury basically counted as extra attacks, they did insane amounts of damage from a very slow two-handed weapon, like the Arcanine Reaper. There was even a famous video of a shaman going around with a legendary mace from Molten Core, one-shotting people with Wind Fury procs. Eventually, though, Blizzard added a three-second internal cooldown to Wind Fury, so it couldn't proc off of itself anymore, and killed it even further with attack speed normalization in patch 1.8. But in patch 1.11, someone discovered that the individual ranks of Wind Fury didn't share an internal cooldown. So if you dual-wielded weapons, you could apply the highest rank of Wind Fury to your main hand weapon, and then the second highest rank of Wind Fury to your offhand, and get two times the procs, which was pretty good. Until this too got nerfed, or fixed, in the Burning Crusade. Number 2, Will of the Forsaken. Will of the Forsaken was given to undead players as a racial with the launch of the game, when Blizzard decided to make undead players be counted as humanoid instead of undead to retain some of the CC immunity that that may have provided, as being classified as undead in the beta made them immune to a lot of CC that could only be used on humanoid targets, like sheep, and just made them immune to fears altogether. So what Will the Forsaken did was break charm, fear, and sleep effects, as well as make you immune to those effects for 20 seconds. Now, 20 seconds of fear CC immunity is huge. And that was a downgraded version of what undeads could do in the beta, which was be permanently immune to them. Which is why I can see why Blizzard left that in the game for so long. Eventually, Blizzard thought giving a race 20 seconds of immunity to 3 CC effects, of which one of them, Fear, being heavily used in PvP, was a little bit unfair compared to the other racials. So they nerfed it in patch 1.6 to only make you immune to those effects for 5 seconds instead of 20, which was still powerful, but pissed off a lot of undead players. Someone took a screenshot back in the day of a list of reasons Blizzard thought players might be quitting WoW, and one of the options available was because Will of the Forsaken was nerfed, which was most likely a joke, but still kind of a big deal. Will of the Forsaken was always a strong racial throughout its whole life, and still gets nerfs even today but it was at its strongest in vanilla WoW. And number one, Pyroblast, or POM Mages. Back in vanilla WoW, Blizzard balanced castable spells based on how long their cast times were. So the longer the cast time, the more damage the spell did. And Pyroblast had one of, if not the longest cast times of a single target nuke spell. 
clocking in at a 6 second cast time. It also had a 6 minute cooldown because it hit so hard. Now, Arcane Mages had this ability called Presence of Mind, which made your next spell instant cast, and worked on Pyroblast. Also, they had Arcane Power, which gave them 35% more damage for 15 seconds. Both of which were on a 3 minute cooldown, and neither was on the GCD. So if you had two good, on-use spell power trinkets, because before patch 1.10, you could use multiple on-use trinkets at once, you could just macro in Presence of Mind, Arcane Power, your spell power trinkets, and Pyroblast to create one of WoW's very first one-shot macros. Except this one was literally a one-shot macro, and not just a clickbait burst macro. You could one-shot players with this macro, but only once every three minutes. Or I guess once every six minutes before Pyroblast's cooldown was removed in late vanilla. As far as damaging abilities go, this was probably the most overpowered thing, as it was a guaranteed one-shot, instant cast range nuke that didn't require skill outside of getting two good spell power trinkets and creating the macro. Now for some honorable mentions, things I thought to put in the list but decided against for one reason or another. That's basically just Reckoning. It was a paladin talent that allowed a paladin to solo a world boss. I didn't include it though, because for one it's talked about to death and everyone would probably be expecting it. And two, the big reason, it was only in the game for like a day or two and it was obviously a bug and an oversight. I guess it would technically count, so I'm adding as an honorable mention, but these other things, you know, were actually used in the game for more than a day. Of course, besides that, there might have been some other things I probably overlooked, so if you know of any other overpowered abilities or things in Vanilla WoW that I might have missed, I'd love to hear about them down in the comments. I don't think I knew what we were making as we were developing WoW. I didn't know what all the systems in this game were supposed to be. All I knew was that we were building something huge and amazing and beautiful. When I was hired onto the World of Warcraft team, I think it was under the title of 3D artist. I was hired on as an associate quest designer. So I joined World of Warcraft as one of the original first two quest designers. It was myself and Pat Nagel. My name is Patrick Nagel. I started working at Blizzard in 1997. My name is Tom Chilton, and the first game I worked on here at Blizzard was World of Warcraft. Woo! Yeah. All right. Yeah. Here we go. Look at this. <laughs> Onyxia by the end of the play session? Yeah, we got this. Put it, do I need to go back? Vaguely right. remember. <laughs> what, is it, what is this template thing, and do Jeez. I need to worry about it, Alec? You guys did work on this. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's you, you never forget your first thing, uh, as it were, that you add to the game. You just don't. I, I can't say I really remember. <laughs> uh, the first quest I made was Kobold Camp Cleanup. Bingle's uh, Lost Tools, or I believe it's called Bingle's Missing Supplies. I feel like, man, I really should have remembered that. So the very first thing that I worked on and added to the game was some of the earliest quests in Westfall. We had a few things in game. They were like these really old buildings that somebody else had built, and it almost looked like they had just pulled them out of Warcraft 3. Um, and so I started working on the Goldshire Inn. You deliver some mail 
to a sheriff. So that's what we're doing right Are now. Are you reading the note that Marshall McBride gives you? Yeah. I think I wrote it. <laughs> you probably did. I'm probably in all caps with crayon. <laughs> the way that we went about it was interesting and very naive. Um, because we didn't know what we were really making then. We had an idea of what we wanted to make, but the reality would become clear as we got into Alpha. That was the way some of the development on that project went. But the team was just so into everything that we were doing, and we were so passionate about it that sometimes you would just come up with an idea, um, and you thought it was great, and you would just do it. Working on a lot of different things at the same time was, of course, a challenge, too. There were the talents, there was the class design, there was the auction house, there was PvP, there was, like, a lot of different stuff going on at once. I think it was the first time I've seen a group of human beings so singularly motivated and passionate about anything in my life. I think they really just wanted to make a massively multiplayer role-playing game that they wanted to play. And I mean, that's what I got, you know, from it, and that's why I wanted to join. You guys, you guys remember when we had to do these quests? <laughs> I literally I freaked that. about this because I was like, it was one of my first, like, like you must do this, and I'm like freaking out, and I'm like, it's got to be amazing. And so like, <laughs> I'm gonna name this guy something awesome. Vulcan, <laughs> Vulcan Isengard. Right? It's like Isengard and strategy. Everybody's planning. We are planning our WoW Classic experience right now, and so we're trying to decide: do we want to be Horde or Alliance? You know, I was always the main tank. My wife was the main healer. Do we want to do that again, or do we want to switch it up? Ironically enough, I, I go through some of the same, like, considerations about what character class to play. I think all those same questions that were bubbling around in my head 15 years ago are bubbling in my head again, and, and there doesn't feel like there's an absolutely right answer, which is probably a good sign. Yeah, I mean, I would love to go through the dead mines with them as well. I mean, it's it was like, I think it was the first dungeon we ever made. It had a great story. Warrior. We are waiting yeah, for you. You're in the dungeon. Yes. Yeah. Oh, wait. Well, not, no, not the we dungeon haven't... itself. Okay. okay, yeah, we're... we're the, this is the public. The public. Oh, oh, yeah. oh, Jeff's going. Oh, I went the wrong way. Oh, Sorry. No. <laughs> How did people ever figure this out? <laughs> it's kind of bittersweet to think about playing the game again because there was something so special when it launched. and. I can only hope that um, as I play it again, I can, it can reignite that sense of exploration and discovery and the sense of the unknown. And at some point during gameplay, it's like whatever that initial thing was that grabbed you the first time 15 years ago, it just kind of grabs you again. I need oh, heels. I need heels. I, need I don't heels. have it. Oh, you're going down. Oh, my God. <laughs> There's the pillagers. I, I still yeah. feel like so much of the magic is here in the game, and I, I wasn't actually expecting that. Yeah, how much it, it holds up and how much of the, the things that kind of drew me into the game are still there. But I, Wait, did you guys holy. Did you guys get the sheep? What do you mean? <laughs> For me, it's it goes past the 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 playing the, the nostalgia that you get of playing the content, and I, it go, it takes me to a, to another time of of a younger me and a different mindset. Even I remember during development, the first time that I took a Griffin ride, and I'll never forget that experience of realizing that everything that I was flying over was real and connected, and it was this world for me to explore. I go back to a quote from Chris Metzen. Chris always said 
that the main character of World of Warcraft is the world. Something that WoW Classic had that was so important to the original experience was sense of world. Yeah. You had to run everywhere, so it really made you think about travel um, right. and pacing. One of the reasons WoW is so successful is that the world itself really draws you in, and there's so much character, especially in those early zones. There was so much creative energy and passion that it made up for some of the inexperience sometimes. Everybody on the team so ardently desired to create the coolest possible thing that they could. And every day we went into work and we poured our heart and souls into the project. And I think that's the reason it came together and into the game that it is today. It, it's such a like degree of fidelity that like, you know, millions of people could potentially, many millions of people could potentially come and, and play this thing um, that, you know, really changed us as developers, changed us as a company. I'm really excited there's going to be a bunch of people who have never played World of Warcraft yeah. before. Yeah. They're going to get to experience pretty much with somebody a generation before them did and have that magical moment. I mean, I think we should keep it hard like this and, you know, the people who want to do it, it's just going to be a really fun way to play WoW. I think there's something to be said for going home again, um, which is something that we don't get in our lives on a, on a normal basis. I think that's a special and exceedingly rare thing to be able to do. And I think that WoW Classic gives those people that opportunity to experience again what home feels like.
is dead The Legion is coming back, we've got to prepare Now level 100 I'm still crying about dailies My friends help carry for me So I can help them out at raids And I can share in glory Most of my logs are old too My blood bank is filling quickly I hope that Blitz gives me more space Or else I'll make them sorry Soon I'll be level 110 My guildies grouped again The legions come, why are there so many Demon hunters The new stuff makes me happy But I miss the old stuff too I hope that Blizzard tries to give Soon I'll be level 110 Will I think the game is older? Will I have a lot of fun and play the new stuff? Soon I'll be level 110 Soon I'll be level 110 Will I think the game is older? Will I have a lot of fun and play the new stuff? Soon I'll be level 60. My guildies asked me, come join our encourage to make it 40. Once I was level 60. Once I was level 60. Professions. With World of Warcraft Classic, we are back to the original grouping and training version that Blizzard got rid of just recently with the launch of BFA, I think. Yes. Where we have the different ranks in profession training. We have the base, we have the journeyman, expert, and artisan for the vanilla slash classic professions. Base profession takes you from 1 to 75, Journeyman 75 to 150, Expert 150 to 225, and the Artisan takes you from 225 to a max of 300. Again, as in retail, there are cases where you have special racial bonuses that grant you additional points for the profession. For instance, a gnome comes to mind with the engineering specialization. So there is that, and they get, I think they get 15 points extra. I don't think they've changed that. Stack sizes. Quite a while back, I can't remember when, Blizzard decided that stacking should be increased from 20 to 200 items per stack. But Obviously, with Classic, we are back to a maximum of 20 items per stack. Uh, there are the exceptions, which give you the 200 stack size, and that's most noticeably ammunitions, like arrows, bullets, and throwing knives. Can't really think of any other at the moment, but that's beside the point. There are exceptions exceptions to the rule of 20 items per stack size. So that's another issue where you will have to deal with lesser backspace 
because the maximum bag size of a normal bag is 16. The UI gives us a 16 slot backpack. The addition to the four special additional bag slots for the backpack that we got when they asked us to use the um, special, what was it? SMS protect or what it was that doesn't apply to classic so backpack size 16 rather than 20 so if you are a non-hunter if you are a non-warlock you will have five bags with 16 slots as a maximum that's all you will get and then having a having all the issues that I talked about earlier with the quest items and the mount and the pets in your bag and on top of that having the 20 item stack size is quite difficult to get used to so yeah there is that oh yes if you are a skinner try to get your profession skill to max before starting to run UBRS Due to the fact that you can get the plus 10 to skinning dagger from the gnome that hopefully survives and spawns after the beast fight. And you need that along with the skinning enchantment on your gloves to get a bonus of plus 15 to your skinning ability profession to then be able to skin Onyxia in her lair after you killed her obviously for her scale that you then used to craft the Onyxia's cloak which again in turn you need to survive the Nelfarian fight the final boss in BWL endgame I know but you can't ever be too prepared so make sure that you are prepared when the time comes that you have the enchantment, you have the, the dagger, you have the ability to skin Onyxia because that is really important for future raid progress. Just a little side note. Hello everyone. Four years have passed since the mortal races banded together and stood united against the might of the Burning Legion. Though Azeroth was saved, the tenuous pact between the Horde and the Alliance has all but evaporated. The drums of war thunder once again. That introduction is where it all began, the story of classic World of Warcraft. Now we're beta up and running, what better time than to sit down and talk about some of the major storylines that played out within the game. The four years that she's talking about, that is when we saw the events of Warcraft 3 play out, and anyone that would like to prepare themselves for classic World of Warcraft, I'd highly recommend to have played Warcraft 3 at least once. The game is a little bit old by now, but it definitely stood the test of time and it's still amazing to play through. Now in the RTS, we saw the Guardian Medivh give Warchief Thrall a vision. Bring your people to the ancient lands of Kalimdor. They're needed to help protect the world against the Burning Legion. 
Fural's horde was different from the one infused with demon blood that stepped through the dark portal to conquer the world, was then defeated by the alliance of Lordaeron at Blackrock Mountain, and those that surrendered, they were placed within internment camps. Some of the orcs managed to flee through the portal back home, some took up residence in their base within Blackrock Mountain, others had already left the horde behind. All much better fates than to stay within the internment camps. These were not exactly the best place in the world to find yourself in. There were guards pissing on you, they were mistreating the prisoners, the demon blood was still lingering in their veins. Some might say that death would have been a kind of option compared to living in these camps. Vral was still a baby when the original horde was defeated. With his parents murdered, the babe was left to die in the wilds, but that would not be his fate. A Dalish Blackmore saved him, a man who ran one of these internment camps, but he did not do so out of the kindness of his heart. He actually planned to use Thrall to raise him as a slave gladiator, teach him to read tactics, the way of war, and when the time was right, have him lead the other orcs in another war against the world. This one, with a Dalish, leaned the charge against his own people. The son of Duratan and Draka learned the cruelty of man while growing up. But thankfully, also the kindness and compassion that the humans possessed from people like Tarifa Foxton. She was his childhood friend, showed him kindness, even helped him escape at the cost of her own life. Thrall would leave the camps behind and meet up with pockets of orcs still living on the planet. Gromar's Hellscream with his Warsong clan, Drekfar and the remnants of the Frostwolf clan, the clan of his parents. Even Orc and Doomhammer, war chief of the Horde when they were defeated but had escaped captivity from the Alliance. He was impressed and inspired by young Thrall. Together, they rose up to bring freedom to their people. While fighting, Doomhammer lost his life, and he decided to pass on his armor, his title of warchief, and legendary Doomhammer to Thrall. That was the beginning of this brand new horde. For the Horde! En route to Ansabedeef's call, Thrall's stolen ships, they ended up in a sudden fierce storm, and they had no choice but to seek shelter on land. On the island, they met Senjin, leader of the Darkspear Trolls, who saw their coming in a vision. His people at the time are dealing with humans that are quite hostile to them, establishing outposts on the island, but it would not be the humans to take Senjin's life. That was actually done by the Murlocs, worshipping a sea witch, a naga, as we later find out. Senjin was sacrificed for her glory. His son Vol'jin would then take over leadership, and the Darkspear Trolls, they decided to come along with Thrall. They escaped from the sinking islands, and they joined the Horde. When all of this took place, Vol'jin was actually on a quest to become the Shadow Hunter that we know him as, together with his bestest buddy Salazane. He wasn't there when his father died, and while a big portion of the trolls followed Thrall on his journey, Vol'jin and some of his tribe, they wedded the Sea Witch's anger. They did so to gather all the supplies that they could, take it with them and join their brethren around a year later in the new orc nation of Duratar. But the friendship between Vol'jin and Zelazane was not meant to last. Zelazane had gone mad with power and betrayed the tribe. With the use of dark voodoo, he robbed most of the Darkspear trolls of their free will, forcing them to obey him. Vol'jin feared that all of his people would eventually fall to Zelazane's sorcery, so he ordered the tribe to abandon the Echo Isles completely and move to the fishing village called Senjin on the coast of Dudatar. Heroes are going to be sent out to strike at Zelazane and his forces to win back the trolls' first home on Kalimdor. Stay away from the voodoo. Now, not all the trolls that you're going to encounter during Classic will be this friendly. The Sand Fury trolls in Zulfarak, they hold powerful treasures, and legends tell of a mighty creature that they worship, a teacher called Gazrilla. More powerful and more deadly, that would be the Loa Hakar the Soul Flayer. This is an ancient, terrible being that the trolls are trying to summon within Zulgroup. This is not the first time that they tried this either. But back then, the green dragon aspect Yisera, she put a stop to their plans, sinking their temple of Atal Hakar. 
This time, it's going to be up to heroes of the world to stop the rise of the blood god, to stop this threat before it can spread any further. We're even going to see some friendly Zandalari trolls that are going to show up to help out. Now back to Warcraft 3. After finally arriving in Kalimdor, Thrall had to spend some time tracking down the rest of his forces as the storm had separated them. While doing so, he ran into Cairn Bloodhoof, leader of the Bloodhoof Tauren, in the middle of their own war against their ancient enemy, the Centaur. These creatures are born from the union between Princess Feradras and Zetar, the son of Cenarius. You actually run into this beautiful being as you adventure into Maraudan. Now Vrouw, he would not ignore the injustice that he was witnessing. His horde stood as a beacon of hope for races, just like the Tauren. The misunderstood, the oppressed and the forgotten, and his horde would fight to protect those in need. Together, they bring the pain to the Centaur. The defeat, it shocks the creatures and sends them limping out of the barrens in disgrace. Never again would they see the Tauren as easy prey, and the Tauren saw the promise of a new future. At last, they had broken this cycle of conflict. The Tauren's nomadic existence was over. While Cairn helped Thrall with reaching Medivh, some of his people, they ventured west into a grassy plain known as Mulgore. There it was, where they would finally settle and build a permanent home of Thunder Bluff. Thrall and Karen's adventures together would forge a near-unbreakable bond, and so the Tarn also decided to join the Horde. That leaves only one more race that's going to join the Horde to be explained, the Forsaken. But to do that, we'll have to backtrack a little bit and explain how the Burning Legion was planning to come into the world. Like I mentioned before, the Alliance of Lordaeron had defeated the first Horde invasion. This was an alliance of the major human kingdoms, the High Elves of Quelphalus, Dwarves and Gnomes banded together for the sake of Azeroth. The Horde would then come back for a second invasion, to which some of the greatest heroes stepped through the Dark Portal to take the battle to the Hordes. These heroes were forced to close the portal on the other side, would not be seen until the next expansion, meaning that the Alliance had lost quite a bit of firepower. Not to mention that at times of peace, it had started to fracture the Alliance quite a bit from within. On top of that, the Legion also sent over one of its most powerful creations, the Lich King, to get that invasion started. With the aid of Kelfuzad and the Cult of the Damned, they worked and planned to spread a plague across the lands of Lordaeron that did not just murder its population, it also brought them back as undead. Within Skoloman's School of Necromancy, they expanded their power and influence, made ready to cleanse the world. These actions did not go unnoticed, of course. The king, he sent out his own son Arthas to investigate, accompanied by Miss Jaina Proudmoore of the Kirin Tor. They eventually found out what was going on. At Strefholm, Arthas made an impossible decision. He was going to purge it, stop the undead before they could spread any further. A decision that would have everlasting effects on the city. A decision that Jaina couldn't believe. This was a road that she couldn't follow her beloved prince on. She left him, which placed them on completely different roads in life. Arthas would eventually make his way to Northrend, pick up Frostmourne and become an agent of the Lich King. While Jaina, she would be guided by Medivh, take the survivors of Lordaeron to Kalimdor to eventually stand with Thrall against the Legion. She did just that, while Arthas and the Scourge left a path of death and destruction in their wake, en route to Quelphalas. The elves did their very best to protect their lands. Many brave souls laid down their lives and were brought back to aid the army of undeath. Their ranger general, Sylvanas Windrunner, did everything she could to hold the line, to slow down this inevitable march, but ultimately she too fell to Arthas and Frostmourne. The peaceful bliss of death was denied to her. She had been such a pain to fight that Arthas decided to bring her back as a banshee, now forced to obey his every command. Obey him as the high home of the high elves fell, and their sunwell was used to resurrect Kelfuzad as a lich. 
He, in turn, summoned Archimonde into the world, who set his eyes on the World Tree Nordersil and his ancient enemy, the Night Elves. They had fought back a legion invasion before, over 10,000 years ago, something that Archimonde still clearly remembered. But for Arthas, he eventually lost a huge chunk of his power given to him by the Lich King. Enough so for Sylvanas and others amongst his undead creations to regain control, rise up against the former master. These forsaken, they rallied to Sylvanas' side. She did her best to claim revenge, but Kalfuzad, he remained ever loyal to Arthas and saved the prince's life so that he could travel back to Northrend and eventually merge with the Lich King. His kingdom was left in the hands of his faithful Lich, but Sylvanas had other plans in mind. She wanted her revenge against Arthas, and first up was the dominance of the land left destroyed by the prince. But that was not that easy to do. The Dreadlords, demons of the Legion, they were meant to keep an eye on these undead operations. They were still hanging out in the lands, and they were not just going to hand it over. Varimafras was the first to fall, begging for his life. Sylvanas was willing to give him a chance to fight at her side and prove his worth. With his aid, she focused on Defrock, who had mind-controlled the local humans under the command of Gerafos. Their minds were liberated, Defrock fell, and Gerafos' forces were added to hers. She promised him to give them the lands back if he helped her out, a promise that she never intended to fulfill. Belnazar, the last dreadlord, was slain by Varimafras himself as a final test of his loyalty, while with their mission complete, Gerafos became a snack for her ghouls. Not a man that would be quickly missed. Now taking the lands and holding them, they heard two different things. The Scarlet Crusade with the Monastery, that's an organization hell-bent on eradicating the undead. They've also been infiltrated by dreadlords and became so zealous in their quest that they could no longer see the difference between the living and the undead. There's also Kelfuzad to consider. Humans and other forces that are not too friendly towards what they see as the Scourge. They are in desperate need of the allies, and it's the Horde that lets them in. Now back over that throw. He eventually finds Medivh, who tells the Warchief as well as Jaina that they need to work together for the sake of the world. Quite a bizarre idea at the time, the Alliance and Horde working together considering the past between the two, but they are very wise leaders and decide to put the past behind them. This leads to some amazing events, like Gromar's Hellscream sacrificing himself to slay Manoroth, liberating his people from the demonic curse. Their group also makes contact with Malfurion Stormrage and Toronto Whisperwind. They're the leaders of the Night Elves and well aware of Archimonde being back on the planet. They team up with the plan of blowing up the World Tree Nordrasil and Archimonde with it. This would mean that the Night Elves are going to lose their immortality, but that's a small price to pay if it means the salvation of the world. Malfurion gathers the ancient spirits of the forest, while their forces hold off Archimonde for as long as they can. By working together, they're able to do the unthinkable. They actually defeat Archimonde. Medusa's plans have worked out just as he had hoped. His time on the world was over, but Jaina and Thrall, they decided to do their best to keep this peace going. She took the remaining survivors of Lordaeron, and they settled within Faramor. While Thrall, he also decided to stay in Kalimdor, in a land called Turretar, named after his father. Their capital of Orgrimmar, named after Orgrim Doomhammer, that would be the Horde's bastion of power in the region. Now this had Thrall and Jaina trying to make the Alliance and Horde see that amazing things are possible when they're working together. Not everyone is able to let go of the past like that though. Forces from both within and without, they keep those drums of war going. The drums of war thunder once again. So what might the alliance look like? Well, considering the events that took place in Lordaeron, the High Elves and the humans from that area, they're off the table. Instead, we see their sister kingdom, Stormwind, adding their humans to the ranks. Quite a lot of people were surprised to hear that it's King Anduin ruling them, believing that people are mixing it up with the current lore, but even back then, it's young Anduin Rin that was the king of Stormwind. 
the story behind that has to do with Deathwing and his child Onyxia. Disguised as Lady Katrana Prestor, she has her black dragon claws deep into the house of nobles. She was able to convince them not to pay the stonemasons what was promised after the work of rebuilding Stormwind, which led to riots in the streets, the death of Varian's wife Tiffin, and the rise of the Defias Brotherhood. Led by Edwin Van Cleef, they took up residence within the Dead Mines, planning their revenge. But they were also recruited by Katrana to kidnap Varian. Her goal was to gain control over the human kingdom, and she planned to split Varian into two. One was going to be the weak-willed Varian, which she could easily keep on the throne, easily manipulate it. And then the strong-willed Varian, his stronger side, that would simply be killed off. Sadly for her, those plans didn't exactly work out. The strong-willed Varian, he was able to escape, but all of that actually happens off-screen, and you don't really see it play out in the game. Instead, we eventually figure out who Katrana really is. We expose her for all to see, and send her running back to her lair, where heroes gathered to slay the dragon and bring her head back to Stormwind as proof of demise. Story-wise, she actually kidnapped Anduin and took him back to her lair, but was then slain by the two Varians and a group of heroes. In their confrontation, she was even kind enough to turn Varian back into one single being, but during Classic, it was actually Anduin ruling the city, with Katrana and Bolvar Four Dragon at his side. The legendary paladin, appointed as regent lord to handle the day-to-day duties of administrating the kingdom until the child was a little bit older. You hold the grim destiny in your hands, brother, but it is not your own. Bolvar! Yep, it's that Bolvar. Joining them are the Night Elves, which might seem a little bit odd, considering that they did team up with the Horde against the Legion. But at the same time, the Horde also killed the demigod Cenarius, who is Malfurion's teacher in the Druidic ways, and they also chopped down a fair bit of their sacred forest for lumber. The lands of Durotar and the Barrens, they're not exactly rich with resources, which is a battle that we can see play out within Warsong Gulch. There's also the battleground Rafi Basin and Altrek Valley, both of them showing the Alliance and Horde clash with each other. My heart sleeps in the Emerald Dream. After blowing up Nordrasil, the Night Elves now live on a brand new world tree called Teldrassil. This one does not have the same blessings as Nordrasil did, so the Night Elves, they still have to deal with no longer being immortal. The tree was actually planted by Vandal Stackhelm against Malfurion's wishes. The arts do believe that nature would never bless such a selfish act. And he was right, but even more dangerous is the part where Fendral, he's been corrupted, is being manipulated by the old gods. Ages ago, Fendral lost his son in the War of the Shifting Sands, which was a massive battle to contain the threat of the old god Cthulhu. Through many sacrifices, they were eventually able to set up the Scarab Wall and keep Cthulhu contained, but now the image of his dead son is manipulating Stackhelm. Cthulhu and his forces are still a massive threat to the world though, so much so that the Alliance and Horde, they're going to pull their source together and do the impossible stack up on nature resistance gear, venture into Ankaraj, and they're going to defeat Kafoon. The old gods, these dark and powerful entities, their luck beneath the surface of the world, desperately wanted to break out of their prisons. Teldrassil has been corrupted through the effects of the Emerald Nightmare, but this is not the only old god influence that we're going to see throughout Classic. Nearby, in Black Fathom Deeps, the Naga are protecting and making sacrifices to Akumai, which is a creature that holds a sliver of the old god's power, but is still incredibly dangerous. There will be world bosses, known as the Dragons of Nightmare, green dragons taken by the dream's corruption, that will occasionally wreak havoc on the mortal world. The ogres in Diremal, they also feel the nightmare's effects and the dangers of the Wailing Caverns. They are caused by a druid stuck within the nightmare. All in all, you might want to pay close attention to the quest that you do for Stackhelm, as he does not believe that Taronda is the right ruler. I have vision that she lacks. 
Then, the gnomes of Gnomeregan, they remain loyal to the Alliance. Their brilliance has sprung some remarkable inventions and also established the Deeprun Trem, fast transport between Stormwind and Idaforge. Sadly, they don't really have a capital to offer, since in the war against the Trogs, their appointed leader, Galbin Mechatork, he made some horrible decisions. He listened to Sicko Firmapluck, a gnome he'd been friends with for a very long time. Sicko had the idea of using gas to wipe out the trogs. The gas should have stayed in the quarantined areas and the lower sections of Gnomeregon, poisoning the invaders as they emerged from the depths, while the gnomes, they waited safely sealed away within the upper urban tunnels. At the time, this had seemed like the only way out of their unforeseen invasion. Firmaplug had seemed so confident that this stuff would do the trick. Sadly though, most of the trogs had just shambled through the gas, if anything growing wilder as they became irradiated. Even worse, the gas had risen through Gnomeregon, killing the gnomes who had sat waiting in their homes, choking on vile cream clouds behind doors that the High Tinker had promised to keep them safe. 80% of their population, they died that day. Even Sicko was surprised. His calculations had estimated around 30% of a population. That's how far he was willing to go to make Galvin look bad. Sicko escaped his punishment and now rules over Gnomeregon, driven mad by the radiation. Meanwhile, the dwarves of Idaforge, they were kind enough to give the gnomes a place in the city, but the gnomes, they could see the pity in their eyes. That was the hardest part. For a race of ambitious folks, whose lives were validated by a masterful command of the scientific laws of the universe, to be pitied was simply unbearable. To be pitied was to be insulted. Galbin knew, for the sake of his people, they would have to retake their former city, retake their beloved Gnomeregon, and retake the gnomish pride. Hello there! Welcome to Tinkertown. Any news from Nomragan? Speaking of the dwarves, they're the final option of races amongst the Alliance. Once upon a time, all the three dwarven clans, Dark Irons, Wildhammer and Bronzebeard, they lived together within Idaforge under the rule of Modimus and Vomar. Their king died and a civil war broke out, one that was won by the Bronzebeard clan, which meant that the Dark Iron and the Wildhammer, they had to go. The Wildhammers eventually settled in Grimbatal doing pretty good for themselves and letting things be, whereas the Dark Irons, they built the city in Red Ridge Mountains, or at least that was what it was known like back in the day. They couldn't let it go though, they were still fuming at their defeat, and they gathered their forces to retaliate. Both the Wild Hammer and the Bronzebeard were able to repel the attacks and combine their forces to stop the Dark Irons once and for all. Emperor Faurusan, leader of the Dark Irons, he scrambled to find a way to defeat his enemies. He decided to draw on the fiery power from deep within the world and use it as a weapon. A great spell was woven, but while conjuring, his mind turned to the death of his wife and his recent defeats. Anger roiled through his heart, affecting the spell work. Unwittingly, he ripped Ragnaros the Fire Lord from his elemental plane of fire, summoning him to the surface of the world. The Fire Lord's violent rebirth sparked a series of apocalyptic explosions that instantly killed Faurusan and shattered the surrounding mountains. The raging volcano, known as Blackrock Mountain, now towered over the ruined Dark Iron Kingdom. The land was renamed to the Burning Steps and the Searing Gorge. Faurusan's subjects that managed to survive his spell were gone wrong. They were enslaved to Ragnaros. From his lair in the Molten Core, the Fire Lord gave his orders and had them carve out a new fortress under the mountain, which was called Shadowfort City. Within their fiery home, they would continue nursing the hatred of the Wildhammers and the Bronzebeards. Now the battle at Grimbatol, it had done so much damage that the Wildhammers, they decided to move on. They settled in the Hinterlands, but the war against the Dark Irons, it had smoothed things over between them and the Bronzebeards. 
We would actually see the Wildhammers fight with the Alliance of Lordaeron against the Horde, but they're not available in Classic quite yet. All we get are the Bronzebeard clan, who were led by Magni Bronzebeards. They are very keen on figuring out the heritage, where they came from, how they were created. Part of their quest for knowledge that will take us into Uldemann, an ancient titan vault. The King of Idaforge also needs the aid of heroes to go and rescue his daughter Moira. She's been captured by the Dark Irons and taken to their city. Much to the surprise of the Alliance infiltrators, Moira was actually furious at their actions, this so-called rescue mission. Over time, she had fallen in love with the leader of the Dark Irons, as unlike her father, he actually showed her respect, kindness, did not think less of her simply because she was born as a woman. Pregnant with Fauderson's child, she decides to not return home, instead carry on his work, put aside her anger and lead the Dark Irons. This strike on Shadowforge City, it had left her clan in absolute chaos, and for the moment, this was an advantage, an opportunity to get them out of the enslavement. While Ragnaros's forces were distracted, she quietly let out word that the Dark Island Dwarves were being forced to create a massive army for the Fire Lords. To draw as much attention as possible, Moira made sure that the rest of the world also knew that there were riches and artifacts to be found, untold power hidden deep within the mountain. She hoped that some adventurous or greedy heroes would band together to shatter Ragnaros's defenses and banish the Fire Lord back to the Elemental Plane. Her plan worked better than even she could have dreamed. The Hydraxian Waterlords, elemental beings of water who were natural enemies of the Fire Elementals, they also got wind of this. They offered aid and rewards to anyone foolish or brave enough to challenge Ragnaros. As the Molten Core defenders fell, the champions decked themselves out in their fire resistance gear. They used the gifts of the Waterlords to destroy destroy Ragnaros's protective runes, leaving no barrier between them and the Fire Lords. Ragnaros's strength was legendary, but it was not enough to slaughter the invaders. In defeat, he was banished back to his elemental plane, meaning that the Dark Irons were finally free. Their leader didn't stop there though. Ragnaros only held control over the lower half of the mountain, the upper half that belonged to Nefarian, Deathwing's son and brother to Onyxia. He'd been working very hard on accomplishing his father's goals of reinvigorating the Black Dragonflight. He was experimenting and combining the power of all five different flights to create a powerful new one known as the Chromatic Dragonflight. Nefarian had kept his presence shrouded, relying on unusual allies to protect his territory. Some of the orcs that survived the defeat at the hands of Lordaeron, they made base within the mountain. They were led by Dalrent, Blackhand, and saw themselves as the true horde, did not acknowledge Thrall as the war chief. With the promise of the Black Dragon's aid, a lie by Nefarian, they teamed up with the Black Dragons, enemies that Moira needed to take care of. Once again, she had her people send information to the far corners of Azeroth, telling the world that Doran's horde had allied with the Black Dragonflight. Her spies made sure that this knowledge found its way to Orgrimmar, as she suspected, it immediately caused an uproar amongst the leadership of the Horde. Thrall had known about this true horde for years, but he had never imagined that they posed any real threats. If Blackhand was foolish enough to trust the son of Deathwing, then there was little time to waste. Though he was a mighty warrior, the Horde's heroes he faced were mightier still. The self-proclaimed leader of the True Horde, he died in his stronghold. His followers then scattered, abandoning the Black Dragonflight. Nefarian turned his wrath on the Horde's intruders, but they did not flee. They cut their way through endless waves of Nefarian's twisted creations, until he too fell to their strength and persistence and beautiful Onyxia-skill cloaks. 
A scale from his sister, imbued in the gear, protecting them from being engulfed by shadow flame, they defeated the Lord of the Blackrock Mountain. The Horde's champions took Nefarian's head as proof of the victory and returned to Orgrimmar as conquering heroes, which left Moira and the Dark Irons to wait for the perfect opportunity to return home and reclaim Ida Forge. But that, of course, is future talk. Now the last raid to talk about, that should be a familiar one, it is the floating citadel of Nachtramas. Hovering over the Plaguelands, Kelfuzad and the means of the Lich King, they await any hero foolish enough to challenge them. In the comics, it was actually Darian Mograine that went into Nachtramas. In-game, it's heroes of the Alliance and the Horde. Decked out in frost resistance gear, the world showed Arthas that they had grown very, very strong. Even Kelfuzad was defeated, but not completely destroyed, as the greed of heroes would see his phylactery survive, and he would return with Nachtramas during Wrath of the Lich King. I really wonder how many are going to be able to conquer Naxxramas this time around, maybe even obtain the Corrupted Ashbringer. Time will tell, but this is the major background and story that you're going to find within Classic Warcrafts. Now of course, there are going to be many more smaller stories that play out, but talking about all of them would take us all day long. Instead, I'll post a list of quests that I would recommend to check out in the description down below. By all means, let me know your recommendations in the comments as well, and I'll add them to the list. There's also going to be a playlist with videos that I've done in the past, covering events and characters of Classic in much more detail. For usual, there's also the Wowhead article to check out for more details on all the things that we talked about today. All of that in the description down below. So for now, I think we've been going on for long enough. As always, thank you very much for watching everyone. Subscribe if you like my videos. Leave a like if you enjoyed this one. And until next time guys, see ya! I'm up in a pug, flying on a rug, doing my hunter thing. You're rocking mad heels, I got mad skills, I'm busting out my serpent sting. We're burning through mob, pop, pop, gloves drop, but you're not paying attention. Everyone rolls greed, but I roll need, and now you're all mad at me. But if you like it, then you should have rolled need on it. They drop a nice staff, eat it and laugh, now the raid is all upset. I need no permission, did I mention, everything is a hunter weapon. I owe good luck with Sartar, then I just heart, then I really wonder if they'll miss me. But if you like it, then you should have rolled need on it. You see
when no one's on You can go, grab all the gold Slash, you quit, and you're gone The open world. Nothing has been more changed than the open world after the cataclysm. Well, okay, that's maybe not true, but if you log into the game and you just f fly around, open the map and look at the, at the zones, at the world map, nothing has visually changed as much as the open world after the cataclysm. We're back to pre-cataclysm Azeroth. Now, there will be no scaling. They implemented scaling for Azeroth as well, for Eastern Kingdoms and Kalimdor in 735, I think. No scaling in dungeons either. So if you want to farm stuff, dungeons, low-level dungeons are actually a valid uh, option if you need mats or stuff like that. Flight points. There aren't nearly as many flight points as we have in retail now. Classic example, none of the starting zones have flight points. Tevisfall in Brill, no flight point. Goldshire in Elven, no flight point. Logging camp over in Elven, no flight point. Don Moreau, the dig site over where you fly up to the airfield, no flight point. Karanos, no flight point. So all of these um, starting zones in the game have no flight points. If you go to Durotar and come out of the starting zone, Valley of Trials as an orc or a troll, go to Senjin or go to Razor Hill, no flight points. The first flight points you will encounter that stay with the Orc Starling Zone or Troll will be either Ratchet or XR, Crossroads. The first flight point you will get on the human side and the only flight point you will have in that zone is going to be Sentinel Hill in Westfall. So that will take some getting used to. Another thing that you have to get used to is that we will not have swim capable mounts. We won't have underwater mounts and we won't, I don't know of any examples, but I've been told that there are some mounts that can swim. But generally, once you hit the water, and your character mounted swims, you will be dismounted. That I know. As long as you only walk through water and you're on solid ground, obviously you will not be dismounted. But as soon as your mount loses 
the ground below its feet, you will be dismounted. You need to take that into account too. And you cannot remount until you have reached the shore again. The mount usually has longer legs than your tune has, so you need to swim back quite a bit to reach the shore, to then mount up again, to then do whatever you want to do. Be aware of that too. Flight points. Back to them for a second. The taxi flights in of themselves are more expensive than we are used to in retail. Not that it matters much because we have way more money than we have in classic. So it's a double whammy. If I remember correctly with these numbers, a standard flight from say XR to Orgrimmar costs four copper on retail. Back in the old days of vanilla, it cost 99 copper, not calculating the rep rebate. Now with classic, it's back to 99. 99 copper is almost the cost of your first spell in your progress of your tune. Not that you have any chance of flying anywhere yet anyway, but still, just to put it in relation, just a mere two-minute flight costs almost as much as your first very important ability. Guilds. You want to create a guild? Get together with five people, you included, hand out the invites for the signature, and then you notice, oops, yep, retail, that worked, that made my guild. In classic, you need 10 signatures. So yourself plus nine additional signatures. The barons are one zone for the people that played in the beta or at BlizzCon last year. You've seen already, or the people that know it because they played the game pre-Cata, they know that we have one big zone called the Barrens, not Northern and Southern Barrens. Thousand Needles is a really dry place. So dry that one area there is called Shimmering Flats with the Mirage Raceway, where goblins and gnomes race against each other. As a matter of fact, eastern and western plaguelands are under heavy scourge control. So western plaguelands is not as liberated as it is in retail. And there's quite a different questing experience there. And this is where you will find Chromie again. For the first time, actually, in-game ever. She's in Andorhal. Stormwind has a park, again destroyed by Deathwing after the Cataclysm. The Zeppelin Tower, yes, only one, in Orgrimmar, isn't in Orgrimmar, but rather outside, down the road towards the coast, in Durotar. Anduin is a young boy, but still king of Stormwind because his father is lost, with Lady Prestor, aka Onyxia, and Bolvar Fordragon, aka the Lich King, by his side. Garrosh is still in the unexplored outlands, so Thrall is warchief, Kern is alive and chieftain of the Torin. Malfurion is asleep in the Emerald Dream, and Fanwell, Staghelm and Turanda are the leaders of the Night Elf Society. 
Magni is king of Ironforge with his daughter Moira in BRD with her husband. Gnomes are set up in Ironforge in the Tinkertown and share starting zones with the dwarves. Trolls are in Senjin, not in the Echo Isles, and share starting zones with the orcs. The Dark Lady has her black-robed Night Elf model, and Verimathras is there with her. And finally, Jaina lives in Theramore. Gathering can fail. Mining, herbing, or skinning can be unsuccessful and, and might have to be repeated multiple times to succeed. Ore nodes will have to be hit on multiple times to gather all the ore and stone. And no, no sparkles on the nodes, so you have to really look for them. The Dark Moon Fair is not on the island yet, so the fair will be in Morgor and Elvin, alternating location month over month. And now to end this, some looting stuff that I wanted to add. Not much, just one comment. Or two, actually. First and foremost, no area looting. And second, raids get item share, which we didn't have in vanilla, where you can swap items back and forth for up to two hours, like we have in retail with the two-hour countdown. Dungeons don't get that. Once someone looted the item, it's theirs. So ninja looters are a thing again, and customer support will not assist with redistributing loot to another tune. They will not. And that has been my little overview over some of the aspects of Classic WoW. WoW Classic, whatever, however you want to title it. I think the official title is World of Warcraft Classic, so I think we should get used to it, but all in good time. Thank you very much everyone for listening. This brings us to the end of episode 103 of Corpse Run Radio, and, and all that's left for me is to thank our contributors for the show. More than normal amount of Hiromar decks today, so I want to thank him especially this time for all his videos that he does. Thank you to Silverlatomi and Kavo for their WoW parody called Classic. Charm with her My Mount and I about the epic Dreadsteed quest chain for the Warlocks. Thank you to Blizzard Entertainment for their WoW Classic with creators. Thank you to Kesia for her WoW parody level 60, which I found fitting since it's literally about everything past level 60, but you always come back to that in your memories. And that's what we get to live in from the next couple of hours onwards. Thank you to Noble87 for his story and background of classic World of Warcraft. And thank you to Amber Salty with her Ninja Raider song parody. Thank you very much, everyone. I hope to see you all again in the next episode. In two weeks, episode 104, you can find us on Twitch. We stream at least four days a week at twitch.tv slash Radio. 
You can find our social links in the show notes, the Twitter page, the, f the Facebook page, the website, obviously, for the podcast. We have a Discord. You can join. So come and say hi. Give your feedback if you would like to do that. There is a section in the Discord for that as well. Overall, thank you very much, everyone, for listening. And most of all, enjoy the World of Warcraft classic experience, should you choose to engage in that. Hero Maldex's last segment, Top 10 Best Class Race Combos in Classic WoW, will take us out today. So with that, enjoy your week, enjoy your World of Warcraft. Bye everyone. I hope you have enjoyed your time with the Forsaken of Cops Run Radio this episode. Should you have an idea for a little segment of your own, I would love for you to become part of the cast. Or if you are a creator of Warcraft original or parody music and would like to be featured on the show, contact us at copsrunradiomail at gmail.com or on Twitter at copsrunradio. We also have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash copsrunradio. Contact information for our contributors is available on our website, crr.podbean.com, along with the links for the segments played on the episode and other information. Corpse Run Radio is a non-profit fan podcast. All segments, music, and sound effects are used with permission. In Classic WoW, the racials are not exactly super balanced. So some of them do perform much better with certain classes than others. And in this list, I'll go over which ones are the best combinations, but mainly for PvE. And I'll go over that a bit more as we go into our first part on the list. And at number 10, we have the Undead Race with Rogue, Priest, Mage, and Warlock. And this is only on this list for its PvP applications. PvP in Classic WoW is a little weird because there's no rated PvP. PvP consists of Battlegrounds and World PvP, and both of those are inherently unbalanced because of the massive amounts of people involved in the variations in which you'll find each other. And it's to the point where some of the most efficient ways to PvP in Classic WoW is to just spam AoEs. So, which racials are best in PvP is very subjective, which is why this will be one of the only spots on this list relating to its PvP usefulness and Undead have one of the best PvP racials in the game in the form of Wheel of the Forsaken. The earliest version of Wheel of the Forsaken was the most broken racial in the game's history, as it allowed them to just be passively immune to fear, charm, and sleep effects. It was later changed at the start of Vanilla WoW to only give immunity for 20 seconds, and could be used if you were subject to one of those CCs, and it was overpowered in this version as well. It was then later nerfed to give immunity for 5 seconds and also break those three forms of CCs, which is what it will be like in Classic WoW and this version is also very strong. Especially since PvP trinkets in Classic WoW only break certain kinds of CC and not all of them. And Fear is one of the more prevalent CCs run in PvP. And the reason I didn't list Warriors along with all of the other classes that an undead can be is because they can already break out of Fears with Berserker Rage but even they are fine with being undead for PvP because you can never have too many ways to break out of CCs. And at number 9, we have the Tauren Warrior Tank, specifically. Now, if you're a Horde and you want to play a Warrior and want to dabble in PvP, 
you have the fine option of a Torn Warrior, since they have fears dealt with thanks to Berserker's Rage, they don't gain as much benefit from Will of the Forsaken as the other Undead classes. And they have War Stomp, an AoE stun for 2 seconds, which is really good for melee classes in PvP. And if you do PvE, Torrent tanks have the highest health pools out of all the tanks, thanks to their racial endurance, which gives them a 5% increased total health. And tanks do like having extra health. Now, the only problem with the Torrent Warrior tanks is there is a better option, which I'll talk about later on in this video, but Torrents are still pretty solid at this one distinction nonetheless, just not super good at it, and that's why they're only at number 9 on this list. And at number 8, we have the Troll Shaman. Out of all the three races that can be shamans, trolls went out because they have Berserking, which will give them a 10% haste increase for like 10 seconds, with the chance of it going up to a 25% haste increase the lower they are on health. And since shamans are primarily healers in PvE, this is the only race that actually gives any kind of healing advantages, which makes it the best of the three. But it's not the strongest race-slash-class combination when compared to a lot of the more top spots on this list. And at number 7, we have the Troll Hunter. Out of all the races that can be hunters, only the trolls and orcs have racials that increase their damage and the orcs racial only increases the damage of their pets by 5%, which does not translate to a lot of overall damage since the highest DPS spec is Marksman, and their Blood Fury racial only affects melee attacks. So, if you want to become a melee hunter, then the orc is the best race for you. But if you want to go Marksman, then Troll is your best bet because of their Berserk racial, which can increase their haste by 10-25% to for 10 seconds and can allow them to cast their aim shot quicker, and can provide a much higher DPS increase than a passive 5% more pet damage if you're able to line up your cooldowns and abilities with it properly. Now, on the Alliance side, most people will pick the Night Elves for Hunters, specifically because they have the highest base agility in the game out of all the other Hunters, because none of the other Alliance races actually have racials that increase their Hunter damage. And coincidentally, Trolls actually have the second highest base agility out of all the hunters, which kind of makes them even more of the best race to pick. Dwarves have a plus 5 increase to gun skills, but weapon skills don't really matter for ranged weapons, unless you can get it up to a plus 15 in that weapon skill, in which case it would only give you an extra 1% chance to hit. But with only a plus 5, like the gun skill that dwarves have, and the bow skill that trolls have, as trolls also have a racial, that give them a plus 5 weapon skill in bows, that's not going to do very much for you unless you're able to increase it by an additional 10, which is not easy, and to add to that, I'm not even sure if it's possible, as there are very few items and enchants in the game that increase your weapon skill. So the Troll Hunter wins out because basically all the other classes just aren't as good in comparison. And at number 6, we have the Gnome Warlock. Gnomes have a racial called Expansive Mind, which increases their total intellect by 5%, and intellect in Vanilla WoW increased your maximum mana pool and also your spell crit. Though I should mention, intellect did not increase your spell power in Vanilla WoW. So it was just the spell crit and mana pool increase that warlocks wanted from the racial, as getting 5% more than all other warlocks is a pretty decent advantage to have, making gnomes the undisputed kings for warlock DPS racials, based on expansive mind alone. And the best a Horde Warlock could hope for 
is the Orc Warlock, thanks to their command ability, which increases the damage of their pets by 5%, which is even less useful for Warlocks than it is for Hunters. Gnomes also have the Escape Artist Racial, and one of the smallest character models in the game, which made them harder to click on, which was actually a legitimate advantage in vanilla WoW PvP. So, they had some good uses in PvP as well. In addition to their engineering racial bonus, as engineering was one of the most powerful professions in vanilla WoW. And at number 5, we have the Gnome Mage, for basically the same reason as the Gnome Warlock, the 5% increase to intelligence. Basically, if you're playing a DPS caster class and you have the Gnome available to you in vanilla WoW, you want to be a Gnome for the expansive mind racial, of which there are only two, the Mage and Warlock. And they also have the benefits of the escape artists and the engineer increase as well. So you'll probably see a lot of gnome mages in PvP, because escape artists is not half bad, even if it does have a cast time in order to break roots in vanilla WoW. Now, if you're playing a horde mage, you obviously don't have gnome available as an option, so the best race to pick is troll for the berserking, as casting faster as a caster is always good. And at number 4, we have the human rogue. Humans have this racial called Perception, which when activated, for the next 20 seconds, you have an increased stealth detection. So, in a rogue v rogue matchup, human rogues can find other rogues more easily. And humans also gain 10% additional reputation for all rep gains, allowing them to grind out the many reputations of Vanilla WoW much easier. Neither of these things are why rogues are so high on this list though. The real reason human rogues are so good is because of mace and sword specialization. These two specializations increase your weapon skills with one-handed maces and swords, and two-handed maces and swords by five. Now, unlike weapon skills for ranged weapons, weapon skills for melee weapons are actually incredibly valuable. You see, ranged weapons can't be dodged, parries, or produce glancing blows, which melee weapons can be, which means melee weapons miss or do less damage much more often. And against boss level targets, the average melee weapon will be a glancing blow 40% of the time. And a glancing blow means your weapon only does 70% of the normal damage and is incapable of a crit. Now, per point of weapon skill past the maximum of 300 increases the amount of damage you do during a glancing blow by about 3%. So, having a plus 5 in weapon skill increases the damage of your glancing blows by 15% bringing up the total to 85% of normal damage every time you land at a glancing blow, instead of 70% of normal damage. And this 15% increase translates to about 6% more auto attack damage, and auto attack damage should account for a large chunk of your total damage. So it wouldn't be too much of a stretch to say that this one racial could increase your total damage against bosses by about 3%. And weapon skills increase your damage even further against less than boss level mobs. As against elite mobs, who are only 2 levels higher than you, you'll do 10.5% more damage with your auto attacks with only a plus 5 in weapon skill, which is usually the level of most mobs that appear in boss encounters. And since weapon skills increase your damage by this much, having a plus 5 in 2 weapon skills, one of them being the most common best in slot weapons, the one handed swords, means humans have a very good damage ratio when it comes to melee classes, putting them near the top of the list, especially with rogues where a lot of their damage comes from weapons, but not all of it. And at number 3 we have the Orc DPS Warrior. 
Orcs also have a weapon skill increase in the form of Axe Specialization, which gives you a plus 5 weapon skill in 1 and 2 handed axes. So if an Orc DPS warrior is using an Axe, they will deal 6% more auto attack damage to boss level mobs, and 10.5% more auto attack damage to just elite level mobs. In addition to that, Orcs also have Blood Fury, which increases their melee attack power by 25% for 15 seconds which is a pretty good damage racial on top of having the weapon skill racial. But since this cooldown also reduces the healing you take by 50% for 25 seconds, that makes them not very good for tanking, as you definitely don't want to nerf the heals you're taking as the tank. Of course, you can just get around this by not using this racial, and instead just take advantage of the Axe specialization. And Orcs also have their Hardiness racial, which is really good in PvP, and is kind of a deterrent to rogues wanting to stun you or pick you out of the crowd. All of this put together makes orcs easily the best race for horde players if you want to play a DPS warrior. But then again, they're pretty good for tanking too, as threat actually mattered a lot back then, so doing more damage with your one-handed axe is also good for tanking. And at number 2 we have the human warrior, both the tank and DPS versions. Now, the reason there's lots of warriors on this list is because every race could be a warrior in Vanilla WoW, so they kind of had the cream of the crop when it came to race class combinations. And human warriors make this list for the same reasons why I put the human rogue on the list, and that's for the weapon skills racials. Most DPS warriors will dual wield weapons, and having a weapon skill increase in two of them means you have much more options for using a weapon that fits your racial, than the orcs who can only use axes. And most of the best one-handed weapons in the game are swords, which gives humans the edge over the DPS orc warriors. And for their tanking specs still, having the increase in weapon skills is just really good. And since they can use either maces or swords, you have more options for gearing up your tank and using those weapon skills. Now, if you want to go for a warrior tank who actually has defensive racials, the dwarf warrior does pretty good as stone form allows you to clear bleeds and basically all other magical effects, and just gives you 10% reduced physical damage for its duration, which is a really good ability for a tank to have, and even Nidals have a racial which gives them an increased 1% chance to dodge. And even when compared to those other two racials, the human warrior is still better because of those weapon skills. A plus 5 in weapon skills is just a really good racial to have for melee fighters, and could have easily put them at the number 1 spot if it wasn't for the actual number one spot on this list. And at number one, we have the Dwarf Priest. You see, priests have priestly racials on top of their normal racials, and the Dwarf Priest specifically is giving the Fear Ward racial, which on a 30 second cooldown allows you to place a buff on someone for 10 minutes, which will negate the effect of one fear. Now, this is a pretty situationally useful ability, as it's not as versatile as a lot of the other racials I talked about, but in the situations in which it's useful, boss fights that have a fear, it's so useful that people will bring a dwarf priest to raid even if they have absolutely no gear, just to have fear ward. And fear ward is so useful in those situations that alliance actually has a slight edge over the horde when it comes to raiding because they have fear ward available to them, and the horde does not. If one racial is so good that it gives your entire faction an edge, that means it earns the number one spot on this list. But that's not it. Dwarves also still have the stone form racial as well, 
which is really good in PvP and on some raid fights, even for a priest. And they also have another priestly racial in the form of Desperate Prayer, which is an instant cast self-heal that can be used in an emergency to heal themselves to save them from dying. A spell that healing priests have in the live version of WoW as their emergency heal cooldown, and it originated as a dwarf and human racial, as each priest was actually given two racials, and one of them was shared with another race. So, only dwarves got Fear Ward, but both dwarves and humans got Desperate Prayer, which is a very useful emergency heal, even if it also had a 10 minute cooldown to Vanilla WoW. They loved to give what they thought were powerful abilities back then overly long cooldowns. Alright, and that's the end of the list. You may have noticed I did not include druids or paladins on this list, and that's because druids only have one race available to them for both factions. So if you want to play a druid as Horde or Alliance, you don't have a choice in which race you get to pick, as it's either Torrin or Night Elf. And for Paladins, even though they were only available to the Alliance, they only had two races to choose from, and both Dwarfs and Human Paladins were alright, and neither was overly better than the other. But if you really want to play a Rat Paladin, I guess, Human would be the go-to for their weapon skill specializations. And other than that, if you think I missed any other very important race class combos that should have been in this video, or have ideas for future videos just like this one, I'd love to hear about them down in the comments. Thank you for listening. Now go out, my minions. Let nothing stand in your way. Until next time.